Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Palm branches in their cloaks, and they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. It was a proclamation that they were being saved. That's what this is all about. This begins the, uh, th- this week, Sunday being the first day of the week, begins the week, the Passion Week. The very last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And salvation would come through it at the end. So this morning it's appropriate that we start by recognizing the work of salvation that God has done in someone's life. Very powerful testimony that we're going to hear this morning. We have Brian Surrett with us this morning. Probably said his name wrong. But Brian is with A Place of Hope. If you guys have been here with us, you know that The Place of Hope is a um, is a drug rehab um, facility, Christian facility that's right over here off of a Carmen, off, off of 31 here. And um, they are doing an incredible work in this tragic, you know, addiction-fested uh, world that we live in. If any one of you in this place isn't, doesn't have a family member or know a friend that's addicted to drugs, you'd be an anomaly because we all do. Every one of us has been affected by this in one way, in one, one way, shape, or form. This morning, God has brought to us the opportunity for Brian to come and share his story. He's on staff at A Place of Hope. And so, Brian, would you come and share your testimony with us this morning? Morning. I guess first off, I need to give a little praise report. Uh, it's, it's really awesome how you guys have come together uh, and, and put together donations for Place of Hope uh, I'll let you know that those donations are really helping uh, with our homeless outreach ministry. Uh, those things are going in uh, people's hands that don't have anything. So it's spreading hope to the homeless in Nashville. And uh, that's really awesome. So thank you, guys. <clears throat> well, <laughs> man, uh, God is good, isn't he? He really is. Uh, today's a day of victory. Uh, Palm Sunday is a day of victory. Um, so I guess I want to share with you guys how uh, God has brought me uh, into victory, uh, overcoming addiction. Um, I guess I'll start from the very first. Uh, my mom and dad um, started out very young. Uh, my mom was 15 and my dad was 16 when they got together. And when I was born, my mom was 16, my dad was 17. So uh, they were really young. and. Uh, uh, they started their lives together, so they pretty much raised each other, had no ideas about how to raise kids. And, but I had a really great childhood. Um, and then four years after that, my brother came into the world, and it was just too much for my parents. So I moved in with my grandma and grandpa, and uh, I was four years old at the time. And uh, my grandpa, uh, he taught me all kind of things about uh, farm work and, and animals and uh, just how to make it in the world, you know, uh, a conservationist, if you will, uh, raising animals for, for food and um, uh, for buy, sell, and trade, and uh, it was a really good life for a while, and then when I was eight years old, my grandpa passed away, and <clears throat> I moved back in with my parents, and uh, uh, it was it was okay, uh, I mean, it was a great childhood, and and it was a little weird coming back into uh, my family's life and, and everything. And, and my grandpa was my world, so it really shattered me. Uh, the first time in my life I was really shattered. And um, 
And then uh, life was good for a while, and my dad worked all the time, and my mom, uh, she would tell uh, me and my brother during the day, you know, when we weren't in school, to go outside, and, and she, she had to stay outside, so uh, we didn't hardly come in throughout the whole day. And then uh, about 10 years old, uh, there was a pastor coming around, and he was doing door-to-door uh, -door ministry, and uh, he had uh, entered into our lives, and my parents would meet with him at the kitchen table, and uh, he was sharing the word of the Lord with my family, and eventually uh, he led my dad to the Lord, and uh, from that point on, our lives started changing. Uh, our parents, uh, my, mine and my brother's parents, got us into church, and then uh, life had started getting a little better. I mean, you know, my mom started letting us come in, to, in for lunch, you know, during the summer, and uh, so, so things started changing, and, and I knew it was because this pastor had come and talked to my dad, but I didn't have a full understanding of exactly what was going on. So, uh, like, the next year or two later, uh, my mom had accepted Jesus, and, and I, I, you know, I had it in my heart that, that they were changed because of this. So I followed my mom to the altar without a full understanding of what was going on, and uh, and I tried to uh, to talk to the pastor about how to accept Jesus, but I didn't have a full understanding yet. Um, so uh, life started getting a lot better, and uh, we were in church, actively involved in church, and and uh, the family life was great. Mom and dad were getting along better, and and me and my brother started getting along, and and then uh, I done well in school uh, all the way uh, up till. I was 13, and then in the middle of my seventh grade year, uh, my mom and dad had decided to move uh, from Pulaski, where we were living, into Lawrenceburg. And uh, <clears throat> the middle of the seventh grade year is not a good transition for a child, and uh, so <clears throat> I had a hard time uh, getting plugged in with the kids, and, and I had a fear of rejection, and eventually I was accepted, and uh, so school life was pretty great. Um, done a lot of working during the summertime uh, with my uncles because they were uh, masons, they were brick and block masons and uh, so every summer you know we didn't have vacation, we worked and uh, by the time I was 16 uh, I had uh, enough money to buy a vehicle so uh, and the only thing I knew was work and I was going to church and and really involved in the church and uh, but I hadn't completely turned my life over to God and then uh, when uh, when I turned 18, I went to uh, Florida on a senior trip, and that's where I met uh, my son's mother, and um, I moved her back home with me uh, to my parents' house from Florida, and uh, we were living in Lawrenceburg at the time, and I started work at uh, Intermet in Pulaski, making parts for General Motors. And things were going uh, really well, uh, and then I, wor I was working there for about a year, and uh, we had a child, and um, you know, after, uh, after my wife had had the child, uh, our son, she uh, wanted to go back to work, so when she went back to work, um, it got to where she wasn't coming home after work, and and I knew something was going on, and, uh, and I was trying to work and, and get a family started, and uh, I found out that 
she had been cheating on me. So, um, you know, this led up to a divorce and, and everything. Well, the divorce is kind of a pivot point uh, for my life because I turned to drugs to find relief through that. And uh, the drug that I turned to was meth. And it really started taking over my life. And it separated me from my family and, and you know, my morals and my values that I was brought up in, uh, all that stuff was pushed aside for, for the drug because it, it took over my life completely. Um, my, my addiction progressed and uh, I eventually lost my job at, at Pulaski, uh, in Pulaski at Intermet and uh, I turned to the streets and uh, I avoided going around my family and I separated myself completely from anything that was uh, uh, per se normal uh, and, and turned completely to a life of addiction and, and what came with that. Uh, and then when, uh, as it progressed and, and got worse and worse, uh, it got to where I couldn't afford to, to uh, supply my habit. So I started looking for other ways to do this and through that, you know, meth was my drug of choice, so when I was, uh, I guess, about 24, uh, I learned how to make meth, and because it's the only way I could uh, supply my habit. It had, it had progressed so far that, you know, I couldn't make enough money to, to provide uh, for what I thought that I needed. And I guess it was uh, a couple of years later, um, I see I was, I was 25, and I had uh, met up some, with some guys, and um, we uh, hid way off in the woods, and, and uh, uh, first one thing led to another, and then there was an accident. This meth lab had blown up in my face, and uh, of course in that, uh, in that environment, you know, everyone freaked out, and, and they were terrified of the law, but uh, my life was at stake. So I had someone drive me to the hospital, and uh, I, I stayed in the hospital about two and a half months, and I transitioned from uh, Murray Regional up to Vanderbilt Eye Institute, and, and uh, my mom and dad, uh, they were, after, after uh, I finally told them that I was in the hospital, I'd been in the hospital about a week and a half, and, uh, and uh, a friend of mine, that worked at the hospital uh, asked me if I'd notified my mom and dad, and I said no, you know, because I'd already shut them so far out of my life, I didn't think that they would uh, want to be there for me. And uh, right before I, I transitioned up to uh, Vanderbilt in Nashville, uh, my mom and dad shows up at the hospital, and you know, uh, what a humbling experience. Uh, it was, I was embarrassed, I, w I was full of guilt and shame, and I started realizing at this point that uh, my addiction had overtook me and uh, my family was stepping back in my life uh, to support me through this. Now, <clears throat> after, after I was released from Vanderbilt, uh, I moved back in with my parents and uh, got plugged back in church and, and I started praying again. And every time I prayed, uh, my heart was just broken. Every time I prayed, I would just break down in tears and I was just overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And 
for my parents to stand beside me after I felt like I'd done all this to myself. It was just, uh, it was overwhelming. And uh, that went on for a little while, and I was going back and forth to Nashville about twice a week, and I was taking uh, 17 different kinds of eye drops in, in each eye. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, uh, it was totally overwhelming because I had done, uh, submerged myself so much in a lifestyle of drugs and running the streets that uh, that security and that stability in my life, it was just, uh, it was almost more than I could bear. So um, after about a month and a half or two months at being with my mom and dad's, I turned back uh, to what I knew, what I was comfortable with, was uh, the drug use. You know, I needed an escape. At least I thought I needed an escape. So this is what I done. I started notifying some of uh, my drug dealer friends and, and things like that. And uh, uh, <coughs> my disease continued to progress. You know, addiction is a disease, and, and it continued to progress. And uh, I was uh, dependent on someone else uh, for, for a change, you know. I was independent my whole life, it seemed like, and, and at least in my addiction. And then... I lost my sight, and I had to start depending on other people. And you know, uh, <clears throat> I just couldn't get—I uh, couldn't get enough. I mean, uh, the drug use was was so much that you know I had to depend on someone else, and I, and I just couldn't get enough. I couldn't get satisfied. So I then uh, uh, taught myself how how to make meth blind, and. Um, you know, when it's, it's such a powerful disease. It, it just draws you back. Without the power of God in your life, I think there's no overcoming it. But the power of God in your life, there's victory. There's victory in Jesus. And, you know, it, it's an absolute miracle to be standing here today, um, you know, drug-free, uh, standing in a crowd of people totally blind and, and at peace today, you know. Um, so eventually, with that lifestyle, uh, I, was, I was in and out of jail, and, um, you know, my parents were partially back in my life because my mom was worried about me. You know, I never would come around, and she knew when I, when I was in the grip of addiction because I wouldn't come around them. And uh, she had filed a, a police report uh, on a missing person because I hadn't notified them in so long. And... Uh, I heard it through the grapevine that uh, there was a missing persons report out on me. So uh, it totally touched my heart, and, and, and I realized at that point what I was putting my parents through. So uh, I was running from the law. I had warrants on me, and, and uh, I, uh, <coughs> I, it got to where I couldn't even get uh, any, any kind of pleasure or enjoyment out of my drug use anymore. Um, I had so much uh, that was uh, burden, uh, such a burden on me, and so much was weighing me down that uh, I eventually reached the end of my rope. And uh, like I said, I had the warrant on me, and uh, the police picked uh, picked me up. They came to a house uh, where I was at. Uh, it was October the sixteenth of two thousand thirteen, and uh, it was absolutely amazing when they picked me up. I finally, uh, for the first time in a long time, felt some kind of uh, security, some kind of stability, and, and a little bit of peace because I knew I was fixing to face what uh, was ahead of me. You know, uh, uh, jail was, was stability and security for me because I was running the streets and um, 
So they, they carried me to jail, and uh, my mom was notified, and, and uh, she broke my heart because when I talked to her on the phone from jail, I said, uh, I said, well, Mom, I'm in jail, and uh, I'm just going to flatten all of my time that I have to do and try to get my head back on straight. And she said, well, at least I won't have to worry about you anymore. Now, that's, that was hard to take for me uh, because I had already had the, the realization that I, had make, I was making my mom worry. Now, when she told me that, uh, it really made me think. So the first uh, couple of months while I was in jail, uh, I kind of turned introvert, and, and uh, I wouldn't reach out to anybody. And, um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot for a blind person to do in jail. I couldn't read books. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't play cards. But uh, what I could do was ask somebody to read to me. Now, the reading material in jail is very slim, too. Uh, you, just about the only thing you have to read is the Bible. So uh, I had people start reading me the Bible. And we started doing that. Uh, after breakfast in the morning and uh, with one guy and and then it progressed too just like my disease did uh, read the Bible that hunger for it started developing in me and uh, the next thing you know there was a Bible study after breakfast after lunch and after supper and I'd started going to uh, the church services well on January the 2nd of 2014 I turned my life over to God and accepted Jesus and <clears throat> praise God. And and at that point, I, I have been uh, a different person ever since. A new creation in Christ. I realized that uh, my addiction was was overwhelming, and it was much too uh, it was much too much for me to handle by myself. So uh, I knew nothing about rehab or 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 12-step program or anything, all I knew is I'd accepted Jesus, and if I didn't do something to learn about my addiction, then I would go right back to it, because that's what I was familiar with. So I told my dad to start praying for me so I could uh, find a place to go to. And uh, I was talking to my mom and dad on the phone. Uh, restoration of relationships was in progress, and, you know, it was really good that they were supportive of me because I was making... Uh, uh, reasonable decisions and uh, the Bible studies continued and uh, the next time I talked to my dad on the phone uh, I told him that uh, I'd been talking to some of the guys about maybe a place to go to like a rehab or something and he said well I've been doing research on the uh, on the internet and this place of hope just keeps popping up he said every time I open a file or something it, place of hope just keeps popping up I said, wow, Dad, that's amazing. I've already written him a letter. And so uh, a week later, I think I got a letter back from Place of Hope. And, and they asked me, they said, well, since you can't take notes or write or anything, can you get around good? She said, because we can't turn you away. We can't deny services, but uh, we've never helped anybody that couldn't see. I said, oh, oh, yes, I can do it. God's leading me there. I know I'm supposed to be there. So my dad's already uh, confirmed that, you know, and, and I was just on fire for God. And so I knew that that's where I was supposed to go. That's where I was supposed to be. And I got out uh, May the 11th of 2014. And when I got out, the place of hope was full. So I went up there and, and talked to uh, the, uh, the lady at the desk. And uh, she told me, said, well, we're full. Can you come back? 
at another time. I said, okay. So went to my mom and dad's, and uh, she gave me a, a time to come back. It was May the 30th. And uh, when I went back to my mom and dad's, we were going to church, and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't go back to meth, but I did turn back to uh, alcohol, and, and I ran into uh, my aunt, uh, and she smokes marijuana, so I'd done that with her, and I drank some alcohol, but when we got back to my mom and dad's house, uh, I just sat in the vehicle, and, and I was overwhelmed with guilt and shame again, that old familiar feeling, and I just started praying, and, and I didn't want to face anybody, I just sat in the vehicle, and I realized at that point that I didn't want to change the way I felt anymore, that only Jesus could change the way I feel. That's the only, uh, that's the only healthy way to change the way you feel is through Jesus, not through drugs or alcohol or people or, you know, all these things I was using. And uh, May the 30th, I came into Place of Hope. It was 2014, and I've been there ever since. Uh, I started uh, in, the, in the homeless program, which is supportive living, and after I got settled in a little bit, uh, <clears throat> I started uh, being overwhelmed with conviction because I wasn't doing the Bible studies anymore. What had got me started on this journey was the Bible studies and, and accepting Jesus, and, and I wasn't doing that anymore. So I started doing the Bible studies again, got some guys together, and, uh, and I went through the program. And they asked me to be in halfway after I finished the program. They, they asked me to be in the halfway program. And then shortly into that, um, our pastor uh, asked me if I wanted to be on staff. And I told him, I said, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do. You know, it's not like I can keep an eye on the people or anything. And, <laughs> and he said, well, we'll put you on third shift. I said, oh, perfect. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> So, so he put me on third shift, and, and uh, you know, and, I, and God just kept drawing me closer and deeper and further in relationship with him. And I started realizing that, you know, I want to give back. I want to do something else. So I prayed into that, and God opened the door of opportunity for me uh, to go through alcohol and drug counseling classes. So um, I was on staff, and I started going to alcohol and drug counseling classes to be a counselor. And now, uh, uh, part of my role at, at Place of Hope is uh, I'm an alcohol and drug counselor for the halfway guys, some of the halfway guys. And uh, the Bible studies are still going on to this day. And there's no better feeling in the world than to sit down with another alcoholic or addict and, and share my story with them of how Jesus has brought me out of this mess that I was in and showed me what victory is all about. And it's only through Jesus. Thank you, guys. Thank you, brother. Yeah, God bless you. Amen. Amen. What a what a. The great testimony of. The victory we can have in Christ and you know so many things can overwhelm us and can rout us and can cause us to be in bondage to and yet you know Christ can break all those bonds amen he's so good the word of God is powerful 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, the Bible tells us. And so, why don't we do a Bible study this morning? You want to do that? Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, if you would. Mark chapter 11, as I said, you know, um, God is in the business of changing people's lives, and, and it starts with His redemptive plan. And today, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus started the process of redemption for us. And it started all the way back in, in, before the foundation of the world, obviously. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Mark chapter 11. But, but today is Palm Sunday. The Palm Sunday, if you're not familiar with it, is it marks the beginning of what is known as Passion Week. The very last five days of Jesus' life followed with a few days in the grave, and of course, ends up with the resurrection of Jesus on the eighth day, the following Sunday. By Friday, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. The very people that would scream Hosanna would actually be the very ones that would be saying, crucify Him. Most would consider this to be anything but triumphal. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he set his face to Jerusalem. He knew what he had to do. And yet we call it the triumphal entry. And yet, circumstances would say, by Friday it was anything but triumphal. It was tragic. By Friday, tragedy struck. Not triumph, no victory. Jesus Christ goes to the cross. Where's the victory? Oh, his disciples even thought that. They, they, they deserted him that night, that Thursday night, the night he instituted the, the Last Supper. Jesus, his disciples gone. One of his own betray him even. Jesus would be left alone, denied even by Peter. Saturday was a lonely day for these guys. Friday night, they were scared. Saturday, they didn't know what to do. Sunday morning, they weren't thinking victory. They were looking back, probably saying, Hosanna? Save me? Save now? That's what it means. Hosanna. I wonder if the words were ringing in their ears that, that those couple days while Jesus was in the grave. Where is our king now? Of course you know that they kind of just were ready to, they were afraid. They sit in the upper room, afraid, shaking, wondering if they were next. And even after the resurrection, there was doubt. They went back to their normal lives. They were fishier. They were fishermen, Peter, Andrew. James and John, they just went back to fishing and Jesus showed up on the shore. What I want to talk to you about this morning is that there is triumph through tragedy. There's triumph through tragedy. I know it sounds like an oxymoron because it sounds weird doesn't make it any less true. I, thought it, I think it sounds awfully strange that God Himself would come in the form of man and live and, and submit himself to the hands of sinful man and say, go ahead, 
crucify me. That sounds strange to me, but it doesn't make it any less true. It is true. I bet that many of us could relate to the concept that there is the triumph of Christ in our life comes probably through some form of tragedy. Maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was in the form of some information that you received that you had some disease, cancer or something of that sort. Maybe it was maybe you were in an accident or or someone was in an accident that you know that would left them paralyzed. Listen, tragedy plays a huge role in our recognition recognition for our need for Jesus Christ. Brian's testimony is a testimony, well, of triumph through tragedy. The fact that, that he got caught up in the world and got sucked into, like you and I, something that held us down, that enchained us, that caused us to be in bondage. And the release was Jesus Christ. It's the same for all of us, and yet many of us never see that until tragedy strikes our lives. Oh, then our eyes are open. Then we want to see. That's where triumph has already happened. Jesus is offering us victory. All we have to do is reach out and receive it. There is triumph through tragedy. Stand with me if you would. We're going to read Mark chapter 11. And this account, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Say that to somebody when you jump in their car and take off. (laughs) And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? And they told him, they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the glorious testimony that Brian has shared with us of the work that you've done in his life. And we thank you for the redemptive work that you've done in many of our lives here this morning, Lord. We pray, God, that you would make us more like Jesus as we sit at the feet of the cross, Lord, as we allow your word to chip away those things that don't belong in our lives. And so come, Lord, form us, fashion us, make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you knew you had one week to live, what would you do? 
Maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you followed the girl that, the death by dignity girl in Washington State. I can't remember her name, but she, she chose to enjoy her life. Her focus was on herself. I want to see these things. I want to see those things. And before my disease catches up with me, I want to end it. Because I don't want to suffer. Where was her focus? On herself. If you had one week to live, what would you do? Where would your focus be? Would it be on yourself and what you wanted to enjoy? Oh, I've always wanted to see the Grand Canyon. I've always wanted to go to Europe. I have one week to live. Money's no object. I can do whatever I want. What would you do? Would you focus on yourself? Or would you focus on others? This is the dilemma that Jesus finds himself in. A week to live, literally five days, Sunday being the beginning of the day, Friday being the day he was crucified. Thursday night he was arrested. He knew this. He knew coming into Jerusalem what he was about to face. He knew that he had limited time on earth. What was his focus? He certainly didn't turn inward, did he? He didn't focus on himself and what would bring him joy and the things that he wanted to experience. What he focused on is others. He focused on others. There's an example in that for us. The fact that our lives are to be other-centered always, no matter where we find ourselves in life. Jesus, in the very last moments of his life, said, I give myself up to others. Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing some circumstance in your life, maybe some news of a disease or something, and you're thinking, my time is limited. Boy, I need to focus on myself. That would be the exact opposite of what the Bible would tell us. Focus on others. Focus on others. Be an example to others. If you find yourself, and there's a man that I minister to on Mondays. His name's Billy. Billy Brooks. He's a quadriplegic. And I go and read the Bible to him, and I talk to him about Jesus. And Billy, I tell him every week, Billy, you're a light for Jesus right here. Don't become inward focused. Don't allow the circumstance to overtake you to where you're focused all on yourself and everybody needs to serve me. Billy, be a light. Shine your light for Jesus right here. Be an example. Let the love of Christ come out of you. I know it's difficult to do. It's hard to do when we're healthy, isn't it? We like to focus on ourselves. And yet the Bible says, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on Jesus and Jesus will cause you to be other-centered. Jesus finds himself here. The beginning of Passion Week. Not many days left. And he knows the very things that he faces. The week starts off with what is called the triumphal entry. That he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Monday, Jesus would clear the temple. He would go into the temple and he would just flip the tables over for the second time. 
He's already done it once at the beginning of his ministry. He will do it at the end of his ministry. What's the, what the, if you look at the last few days of Jesus' life, you see what is important to him. His father's house. The first thing he did when he came to Jerusalem, he cleared it all out of the money changers. These people who were ripping the people off. Tuesday focuses on his disciples, begins to teach them more. Time is limited. I need to teach you. I need to share with you the things to come. There's many things I have to teach you before I leave. Oh, and then Spy Wednesday. Spy Wednesday is when Judas would go and he would trade the life of his friend and his Lord, or not his Lord, the one that he would fake knowing and being relationship in, and he would trade him for 30 pieces of silver. And then Maudie Thursday, Jesus would begin the day focusing on his disciples, teaching his disciples, washing their feet, showing them to love and to serve one another. And they would wash their feet. And then, towards the evening, he would provide them with an institute, the Last Supper, the very first communion service, where Jesus would say, I want you to remember this. This bread that was broken. It's my body. This blood, this, this cup that is the blood that represents my blood, which was spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, they would, they would all not really be understanding what's going on there. And then they would sing a hymn. They would sing a song. And they would make their way to the Mount of Olives. It would be there that Jesus would meet His betrayer with a kiss. And then He would be arrested. And where His disciples went, nobody knows. God knows. They just dispersed. They were afraid. And Peter would follow Jesus behind all the way into Jerusalem. Probably knowing, what am I doing? I don't, un I don't understand what's going on here. I feel drawn to go. And of course, it was prophetic, wasn't it? Jesus said, Peter, before the crow cocks in the morning, you will deny me three times. Of course, he has to be there for that to happen. He was there. He, he was around that fire that early, early Friday morning when he would deny Jesus three times, when they would say, no, you're with that Nazarene, aren't you? And he would begin to profane him. And then, of course, by 9 a.m., Jesus would be hanging on a cross Friday morning. He would die maybe sometime around 3 And then Sunday would come. Sunday is the day where we find the triumph that happened back just a week earlier as Jesus would enter Jerusalem. This is a victory entrance. But it doesn't look like that. If you don't have the rest of the story, you would look at it like, doesn't seem like there's victory to me. And yet there is. And so I say... That whatever you're facing in your life, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, it's the same. You see, there's victory in Jesus Christ. The Bible declares that for you. You have victory in Him. It's positionally you have it already, so walk in it in your circumstance. 
Don't allow your circumstance to overtake you, but receive the triumph that comes through Jesus Christ. Why is this such a big deal, this triumphal entry thing? Because it was prophetic. It was on a prophetic timetable. Jesus had to fulfill every single thing that the Old Testament talked about. The prophets would proclaim and declare that the Messiah would do these things. One of those things would be that a precise moment that he would come into Jerusalem and he would be riding on the colt of a donkey. It's Daniel chapter 9. Verses 24 through 27, you may be familiar with the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. It says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit to, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore... And understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again and with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It ends, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are, de are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with, one for, with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abominations shall, one, so shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Now, we're going to focus on the first part of this prophetic word that was given. Daniel says that there was seven weeks plus 62 weeks before the anointed one would be cut off. The first seven weeks. So one week is considered a year in the Bible. And so, uh, you know, seven times seven is 49. 49 years... And during that time, there would be an anointed one. Some ruler would rise up in that day. And they would begin to restore Jerusalem back to the way it was for the 49 years. It would start at the decree of when uh, you know, Artaxerxes would tell Nehemiah that he could go back and build Jerusalem. That's when it started. And for seven weeks, during that 49, week, 49 years, he would, they would rebuild Jerusalem. And when it was rebuilt, now starts the 62-week process. 70 times 62. Total 69 weeks. 483 years. From the moment that Artaxerxes gave the command that Jerusalem could be rebuilt until the cutting off of the Messiah. There is a prophetic timetable in the Bible. You know, many people approach the Bible like it's just ambiguous and there are no real details, and yet there are so many details. Of course, we can't try and Da Vinci code the thing, but there are some things that we can look at. There are some timetables that God gives us. Listen, it just wasn't coincidence that people were outside of Jerusalem that day waiting for the Messiah to come on a donkey. They were waiting because it was prophetic. And they understood the timetable. 
483 years. There was a man named Sir Robert Anderson who was a 19th century theologian. He was also like a CIA agent or something like that in Great Britain. And he did the math on this. He determined that from the point of March 14th, 445 B.C., you get the date, you can read Nehemiah, you can get the date from there, you can do your research and understand. He, he, he did all the research, he comes out to March 14th, 445 B.C. That's when Artaxerxes would tell, uh, you know, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua or Joshua, the high priest of the time, Ezra, those guys to go back and rebuild. Using the Jewish calendar, which was a 360-day calendar, you take that number times the 69 weeks or the 483 years divided by the 360 days a year, it brings you to a date of April 6th, A.D. 32, which happens to be, coincidentally, the first day of the week of Passover week. What day did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on that day? The first day of the week on Passover week, April 6th, A.D. 32. Understand, the Bible gives us many details that we just have to look to. This is, this is not coincidence. This is prophetic. And God does what He says and He says what He does. When He gives a decree, He follows through with it. And that's exactly what happened here. Jesus showed up on that day and He would be cut off at the end of the week. Just like it said, after 62 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off. The anointed one would be the Savior, the Messiah. This is prophetic. This is profound. This should help us see the, how in control God is and that we can trust Him in our situation. Now, not only is that an important day, but also the way that Jesus would come into Jerusalem is also crucial because that also was prophetic. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? This is the way the Messiah would come. How did Jesus come into Jerusalem that day? It tells us exactly the way Zechariah said he would, right? Interesting enough, maybe it's not as you think. There were two donkeys that day. Matthew tells us that it was the, the mother of the colt also, that they were both, the, that the, the mother was probably, that the colt was attached to the mother and they would, just to keep him in check. So that he, he was only, he was a, he's a foal. He was under a year old when he came in. Not only do they get to rip off one donkey, but they got to take two of them. And they're just supposed to say, hey, no worries, Jesus needs it. I don't know how that would work, but it did, and he came in exactly this way. The prophecies continue, though, don't they? We understand that prophetically, at the end of the week, this cutting off, this, this thing that Daniel talks about is speaking about death, speaking about the, the anointed one to die. He would come to die. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was, he was fashioned and formed to be afflicted, to be crucified, to be, to, to be killed. Psalm 22 tells us the same thing as a result of this triumphal entry. And then, 
Not only is that it, but there's also more. Psalm 16.10 tells us that Jesus Christ would rise again from the dead. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's when the triumph is realized. And that's what we're going to look at today. Yes, positionally triumph happened when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, but it didn't materialize until he rose again from the dead. God does what he says and he says what he does. I just want to briefly go over this account real quick about what happened here. Why a donkey? Why would the King of kings and the Lord of lords ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Look, if I'm coming into Jerusalem, I'm the Son of God. I am God in the flesh. I'm rolling in on a white stallion. Like I'm talking Ferrari GTRS Los Luso, 12 cylinders, 680 horsepower. That's how I'm rolling in Jerusalem. Jesus rolls in on a Ford Pinto. Like he comes in in such a way that it's like, whoa, and yet it's impactful. Why a donkey? Well, because back in ancient days, when a king was going to war, he would ride a horse. But when he was coming in peace, he would ride on the back of a donkey. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as a peaceful king. He was telling the people, I'm coming as a peaceful king. The first coming of Christ in this form, when he took on human flesh and he came, was his coming as the Savior of the world. He was coming to produce peace for you and I between you and God. That's why He came. And so He was saying, I'm coming to bring peace to the world. Isn't that what it's, that wasn't that the pronouncement at His birth? Peace to, to those on earth? And glad tidings? Yes. But understand, at His second coming, what's He coming on? He's coming on a white horse. He's coming for war. But his first coming, he was coming as peace. Why the palm branches? Why this big procession? You know back in these days when uh, a Roman you know, centurion or someone would go and conquer uh, you know, some land, they would have this big procession coming in and he would ride on his chariot and it would be a big ordeal and they're thinking that's their king? Rolling in on a donkey? Oh, how anticlimactic, and yet it was climatic because it was prophetic. Jesus came the way that the Word of God said He would come, and there's pictures in it. Why the palm branches? Palm branches declare victory. Solomon engraved palm branches on the doors of the temple. Victory. There's victory in this. Where's the victory five days later when Jesus would be crucified? The very ones that would be chanting Messiah would crucify Him. What do they have? What is their understanding of what Jesus is doing here? Oh, they understand exactly what He's doing. They understand He is coming to set up a kingdom. It's Hosanna, the word means save now. And of course, we see here that they are declaring Hosanna, save now. This crowd is a fickle crowd. They are thrill seekers. And yet a week later, what are they doing? Their zeal for Jesus is gone and they are seeking another thrill. Let's crucify Him. That'll help. 
that'll make us feel satisfied. They were declaring that Jesus would come and institute the kingdom, the new kingdom, that, that they would no longer be under Roman rule. The thumb of the Gentiles would be removed and now they could become a sovereign nation. That's what they were expecting. That's why they were crying out, Hosanna. We see it in verse 10 here. It tells, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's what they expected. You can see why just a few days afterward that, the, that, the, that the, 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 all of this hype had faded and they realized that, oh, maybe Jesus isn't everything He said He was. Luke tells us that when Jesus came in that, that there were more than just the, the fickle crowd, there were the Pharisees there. In Luke chapter 19, verse 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if I were, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus, keep your people quiet because this is blasphemy. No, this is prophetic. And if I were to silence them, the very rocks would cry out. Like, the, the concept of the annoying orange would come to reality at that point. Like things would just start to talk that don't talk, like oranges, you know? Rocks would begin to cry out, Hosanna. That's the glory of what's happening in this moment. Jesus is submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in this moment. And he's saying, I know victory is here, but it's not going to come in the way that they think. What does Jesus do after all of this happens? He goes to the temple. What's he doing there? He's looking around. This is Jesus' pregame preparation. Anybody who's been an athlete understands what's happening here. Jesus is walking the field. He's playing it out in his mind. The moments that will take place in these specific places in this temple mount area. I'm going to be scourged here be beaten and brutalized. I'm going to be spit upon as I walk up the Via Della Rosa here. Jesus was preparing himself to be crucified on this day. It was late that evening, but Jesus made it a point to go to the Temple Mount so that he could visualize what was about to happen to him. He was preparing his mind. He was setting his mind on you and I. He was becoming, he was already others focused, but he was making that sure in his own mind. It's called visualization. People do, many athletes use it as a method of visualizing what they're going to do before they do it. I wonder if that's what Jesus wasn't doing in those moments where he would understand that these guys will be confused about the triumph that will happen through this tragedy. But by Sunday, Maybe they'll understand. Maybe they'll understand. And I would say 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is saying to you and I this morning, maybe you'll understand. Maybe you'll understand that God knows what He's doing in the midst of your tragedy. That God is in control and that He has a plan and a purpose. And you might, not, you might be fighting Him all the way and He's just saying, submit to me. Get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on me and I promise you, I will minister to you. I will mold you and make you what I want you to be. But so sadly, 
for most of us, it has to come that way because we're too stubborn. Many of us are like mules, aren't we? Wait, what did he just say? Many of us are stubborn in that way, aren't we? And God would say, I love you enough to break you. I love you enough to put you, to allow tragedy in your life. He doesn't create those. Oftentimes, he allows sinful man to just do what he's going to do, or he allows your body to do what it's going to do. But listen, he's allowing it for a purpose. He knows what he's doing. Will you trust him with it? This morning is a challenge to you as you go about your week to remember that Sunday's coming. No matter what you face, there's a Sunday coming for you. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. No matter what you face, you are already victorious. No matter what it looks like. No matter, Jesus says, hey, you may have to walk this thing all the way through, through the grave, but I promise you, you'll end up coming out of it because I did that for you. Trust Him. If you're not in relationship with Christ this morning, you come to that place where you submit yourself to Jesus Christ. Because it's only in Him, as Brian said, that we have victory this morning. No way else can you find salvation. It's only in the name of Jesus. And it comes by you submitting yourself to Him, by you calling upon His name by faith. And if that's you this morning, you need to simply just cry out to Him in this last song. Lord, save me. Hosanna. Save now. I confess my sin to you. I receive your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross, that you rose again from the dead, and I proclaim that in my life today. I'm receiving that. And I promise you, as Brian said, you will become a new creature. The Bible tells us if we call upon his name, we shall be He's not going to reject, oh, I'm sorry, you've done too much. No. His blood is efficacious. It can cover any sin, any amount. It's not a problem. Today, if that's you, you call upon his name. It's not about the words. It's about the attitude of the heart. You call upon his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and for this opportunity to be able to hear a great testimony of what you've done in Brian's life, Lord. Thank you. We praise you this morning, and we thank you for salvation. And we know, Lord, that it comes through Jesus Christ. And we, we pray this morning for anyone that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would call upon your name. Father, for those this morning that are walking in you and are maybe find themselves in some circumstance and they're unsure, they're fearful, they're doubting that this morning, Lord, that you would help them to turn their eyes back towards you to see that you are everything you promise you are always. Lord, let us realize that it's not as it seems this morning we have victory. Maybe in those things that have been routing us all our life. And yet you have come to set us free and we are free indeed. Let us receive that this morning, Lord. And as we cry out Hosanna, this last song, that you would help us to remember that you're coming in the clouds, Lord. You're coming on a, you're coming on a horse. And there's a war about that will take place on this earth. Lord, let us tell as many people about Jesus as we possibly can before that happens. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.